Welcome to season three of the Grow Your B2B SaaS podcast. In this podcast, we cover all topics related to how to grow your B2B SaaS, no matter in which stage you're in. I'm Joran Hoffman, the host of the show and the founder of Redditus, which is a B2B SaaS that helps other B2B SaaS companies to set up, manage, and grow an affiliate program. This basically means I'm going through the exact same journey as you are, experiencing the same issues, having the same questions. And this is the reason why I started the podcast in the first place getting advice from industry experts on a specific topic. So if you like this content, make sure to follow, subscribe, review the show so we can help as much founders as possible. Let's dive in. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how to audit your SaaS growth. My guest today is Asia Orangio. Asia is the founder and CEO of Demand Haven, a growth consulting firm that helps SaaS companies to find their best growth opportunities. Asia is a regular speaker on the big SaaS events she runs her own Substack newsletter. She's a mentor at Tiny Seed, and before this, she had multiple roles within Demand Gen. Has been a board member at Moz until they got acquired in 2021, and a mentor in various SaaS communities. So definitely a mouthful over here. I'm really pleased to have her on the podcast today. So let's just dive right in. Welcome to the show, Asia. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. No worries. And I always start with a really Dutch blunt question. Why should people listen to you today? You should listen to me because I have been working with and talking to SaaS founders and SaaS growth teams for the last six years. I've worked with hundreds of them at this point, and I've seen everything from zero MRR all the way up to 500 million MRR, or excuse me, ARR. So I have quite literally seen just about every single stage of growth, everything from very early stage MVP up to growth stage, traction stage, and then, of course, scale, scaling up. And when it comes to growth, of course, it's holistic practice. But you should listen to me because I've been helping companies of all shapes and sizes accomplish it and do it. And uh, yeah, that's my answer to that question. Nice. I like it. I always start with the real basics. What is SaaS growth in your point of view? So is it purely revenue or do you also consider other things within SaaS growth? Sure. To me, what SaaS growth means is it is the holistic practice, the combination of all of the various growth functions of the business working together to achieve the desired outcome. It could certainly be revenue. It could also be growing the customer base. Traditionally, I think what we see is we want to see increases in revenue, but this also can speak to, of course, profitability and sustainability. Ultimately, the desired outcome is what we have to align around whenever we're thinking about growth. Traditionally speaking, I, I think historically speaking, we've seen it be about the numbers and less about profitability. I think that story is changing, especially in today's fundraising environment. But that's the way that I think about growth. It's not just about marketing. It's not just about acquisition. It's about the whole piece of the, the puzzle. It's about also activation, retention, engagement, monetization. So it's about all those things working together. And then, of course, the team and the people and the processes and the tools that you use to make those things work. Yeah, really nice. I think you mentioned the entire funnel over here already. We're going to talk about how to audit your SaaS growth. I guess maybe then one really basic question still, why should founders care about auditing their growth? So a lot of times when we think about troubleshooting in our businesses in general, a lot of the times it feels like there's always like the one KPI that's like sticking out like a sore thumb. But sometimes when we do like a full analysis and we're looking at the whole business and we're looking at from top to bottom, from left to right, let's look at the whole entire thing. 
a lot of the times we find that the KPI that is the thing that seems to be the most bleeding or hemorrhaging or whatever it is, usually there's other indicators in other parts of the business about why that's happening. So when I think about why should we be auditing growth, you might have in your head that there's this one KPI that you need to improve. You also might not be clear at all about what the KPI is or sets of KPIs are. If we never audit or analyze what growth is looking like, how it's performing today, then we run the risk of not knowing exactly where to put our focus and exactly either what KPI to improve or what outcome to achieve. It could be very much a quantifiable thing, but it could also be a little bit more qualitative. But when I think about auditing growth, usually it's because there is some fundamental challenge in the business. And it could be that we're troubleshooting growth, like something's not working as well and we need to figure out why. Or it could be everything's going great. What are we missing? What are the opportunities that are available to us that we just don't know about? So that's how I think about auditing growth and why we should do it is, of course, to make sure that we don't miss the boat. We don't miss out on the things that could, of course, be giant red flags and we just have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. But the funny thing you said is even though there are no red flags, even though things are going really well, you should still always be auditing your growth. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it, There's no shortage, of course, ideas and things to do. That's The list is always and forever growing. But what I find a, a good audit process will do, though, is it'll actually create focus and alignment around, okay, what is actually the most important thing to do? And that's really tough to do in isolation. It's also really tough to do just looking at the one KPI. It's much easier to do when you look at the whole picture all at once and you can zoom out and take the bird's eye view and ultimately be a little bit more strategic about how you approach it. So totally. Yeah. And at the beginning, you mentioned you, you help startups from early stage to, to later on. Like from which point should you care about auditing your growth? I would say once you get that first 10 to 15 KMRR, even the smallest analysis will help. And there's like a few KPIs that I can think of that would certainly would certainly indicate that there needs to be a, a focus in particular areas. I think most most founders and, and their growth and product teams are so concerned with product market fit in the, in the beginning, and that should certainly be the case. I'm not saying that's not the case. But once you start getting your first 50 customers, your first 100 customers, then you can start to think about, okay, where are my opportunities? What's working well? What's not working well? And also what's working well and not working well within the context of everything else. Getting that full picture is what's important. But I would say you can start very early. There's certainly a stage where maybe it doesn't make sense, such as like you're in the customer discovery phase and or like you're in the process of building an MVP. Probably you don't need like a growth audit at that point. But once you start seeing, okay, we've got our first 10, we've got our first 30 customers, we've got our first 50 Usually that's an indicator of we need some kind of process, even if it's a minimal one. That's a good bridge to the next question regarding processes. Do you have any strategies or processes you can share which people can use to audit their growth? Absolutely. So the very first step with conducting your own growth audit for your own business is really to identify what the goal is. So why are you auditing growth? What, what is the thing that you're hoping to achieve? Being careful, of course, that we want to form a hypothesis, but we don't necessarily want to succumb to confirmation bias. So for example, maybe we want to really understand how acquisition is performing. And also maybe our ultimate goal is to leave or walk away with really clear takeaways on what to do in acquisition to improve it. However, we want to also make sure that we don't lead ourselves down a path that implies that 
that is the answer, especially if acquisition actually turns out to be fine and it's actually retention that's suffering. The ultimate first step is really to just form your hypothesis of what are you hoping to achieve? What do you think is actually happening? And keep, keeping space for being proven wrong, of course. The next step is to either do one of two things. You're either going to align a team that's going to help you gather data or you are going to decide to take this on yourself and you're going to carve out some time. This is not a done in a day type process unless you are very small and like you're tracking everything. Usually what ends up happening with a growth audit is you're ultimately gathering data, not just from one part of the business, but from several parts of the business, both from a performance metrics level basis to a financial perspective, and then also ideally to a qualitative perspective. So when I do this with companies, it takes about four weeks. But if a team were to put their heads together and to really dedicate time and energy to this, they could get it done in a week or two. But if it's just you, maybe your earlier stage, maybe it's just you on the team, or you have a small team of developers or engineers or what have you, this is probably going to take a few days. So I would just set aside some time. And then if you can assemble a team of people to help with this, great. Tapping the people that you'll need will, of course, depend on your goal. What is your ultimate goal for this audit? What are you trying to understand or what are you trying to uncover? And then from there, what I highly recommend teams do is identify a few different things across the areas of business. So you want to gather data of performance on how awareness and acquisition are performing. So this is what does a funnel look like? like? How much traffic are you getting? Trials, demos, leads, et cetera. Next, you want to get a sense for activation. How is activation performing? So this is how many of those trials are becoming customers? How many of those trials or new leads are achieving the moment of activation? And the more that you study activation, the more that you'll learn that there's actually many, there's actually several points in the activation journey. And then you want to also look at retention. How is retention performing? What does revenue cohort retention look like? What does overall revenue churn look like? Do certain customers churn more than others? Like you want to get what is the information that you're going to need from retention in particular to help inform your overall audit. And then finally, if it makes sense for you to analyze this, because not everyone does have this, but there's also expansion revenues and an understanding and an analysis of expansion. What percentage of your revenue comes from expansion? Is it really small? Is it higher? And then Finally, the final layer to this is there's the business performance, of course, but then there's also team and overall organizational performance. So are there any gaps in the team? Are there any gaps in the process? Are there any gaps in tools? Are there any gaps in maybe data or insights that you might need? And this is all, of course, dependent on your goals, but usually the data and insights gathering process is the hardest step. It's the one that takes the most time, especially if you're not tracking certain things or if you are, like there are some founders out there that don't have subscription analytics, for example, so they don't even know what their MRR is at, at the tip of their fingertips, which is wild to think about. There's all kinds of scenarios. I've seen it all. I've seen the team that's crunching numbers manually in Excel, but I've also seen the team that's manually crunching what their activation rates are without mixed panel or without amplitude. It's painful to watch, but at the same exact time, they can do it. It just takes them longer. So this is the type of data that we will need. And Ideally, we are putting all of this into a doc of some kind. And from there, it really becomes about the game of identifying what's behind, what's ahead, and what are the gaps based off of where we want to be. And this is, I would say, so gathering the data is usually one of the hardest steps. The second hardest step is, of course, figuring out what's maybe working or not working. But I find with a really good hypothesis 
and ultimate goal for the audit, usually that goal informs how you look at this data. And also it forces you to get really honest about how much do you trust what you have and also what information might you be missing to make an even better decision about how things are going and what's working versus not working. But what we find is typically in isolation, so if we were to just look at acquisition and we never once considered how retention was performing, we might come to certain conclusions that acquisition is doing great or maybe it's not doing great and we're, we can't figure out why, but actually it's retention that's suffering or it's something else that's suffering. So this is why we have to take a holistic approach to this because we could be leaving things on the table. Yeah, because in the end, you don't want to fill a leaking bucket. Like when the head of CS before and we really looked at what kind of clients do we get in and why are we losing the clients? So we went all the way back to acquisition at the beginning. I guess to summarize a bit what you said, like I can't summarize everything, but start with what is the goal? So form a hypothesis, gather the data. So make sure you have everything and indeed like get some uh, metrics in place. There are a lot of free tools where you can at least get like the basic metrics in place. How does the funnel look like? So look at the different areas, acquisition, activation, retention, and expansion revenue. Then make sure that you look at your organization performance. So are there any gaps there? And then basically conclude with what is behind, what is ahead, and where are the gaps, basically. Yeah, perfect. Nailed it. You kind of already mentioned it a little bit, like companies not having the data in place or not even having the basic things in place. Are there any other common mistakes companies make while auditing their growth? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a couple of things, and honestly more. The first is not knowing what to measure in addition to not knowing how to interpret what has been measured. So what I mean by that is, so if much about product management or growth, then you might know that within activation, so activation, you've probably heard of the pirate metrics, are acquisition awareness, activation, blah, 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 revenue, retention, referral, et cetera. But when it comes to activation, there's actually, there's tons of KPIs that you could be measuring within activation. There's net new user retention, there's daily active users, monthly active users, annual or quarterly active users. Then there's, gosh, like you, you could look at just direct conversion rate of trial to paying customer. That's what a lot of people will start with. And then there's activation rates based on, or cohorts even, based on how many people get to the aha moment, how many people get to the primary value moment, or how many people get to blah, blah, blah. There's 20 different things that you could measure. And what I find is a lot of teams get stuck on what is the thing that they need to measure to help them make a decision. And then once they measure it, what does it mean? How do we interpret it? These are, maybe they're less mistakes and they're just more gaps. And so a lot of what we will see whenever we audit growth is there will be assumptions made about what these KPIs are and how they're performing. And what's always so fascinating is whenever you pull up the industry standard B2B versus B2C, SaaS KPIs and metrics and performance level things, sometimes what you'll find is there's a KPI that we're tracking in the teams. Like, yeah, this feels really good. But then when you compare it to the average, it's much lower. And that usually is a really clear like, hmm, this is interesting. This is an interesting opportunity to further explore. We're not going to assume, of course, but it's interesting to explore it. Uh, and then other times you get scenarios where it's well performing, like well over. So for example, I think the average B2B SaaS free trial conversion rate today in self-serve companies is I think at 30% for top, like top performing companies. I've seen some activation rates or conversion rates, at least in this case, that are like 60%. Like I've seen like quite literally double, like really high. Sometimes it's, oh yeah, let's pat ourselves on the back and it's great. But then maybe later we also see though that that doesn't have an impact on revenue growth. <laughs> and so then it's okay, what's happening? So there's a lot of the times it's not knowing what to measure, not knowing how to interpret it. And then 
The other thing is making an assumption about what it means. This is extremely common. The thing about all the quantitative stuff, the KPIs, the metrics, is it does a really good job of telling you what, but it does not tell you why or how or even who. And sometimes we'll measure like an activation rate or a retention rate or revenue cohort retention or whatever it is. And we'll look at the number and we'll assume we know why was the website conversion rate that good or why was the activation rate not good? Like we'll make assumptions and we make them instantaneously, almost without even thinking about it. And nine times out of 10, I will go through, I will go through the report that we ultimately produce. And it's so interesting to, to hear people's reactions and responses like, oh, our activation rates this way because of this. Or, oh, the reason why people don't hit the value moment is because of this. And do you know that? Or do you think that? And it hasn't been actually proven with qualitative insight. <laughs> and not, usually it's a hunch and it's an assumption that we've made and we've not actually validated it. And once that's enlightened, then it's usually, okay, we have some work to do. That's the work. Those are the top three that I see. There's more that I could list off, but those are definitely the most common. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the one making assumptions is indeed a big one. Like I even do it myself. I just, the, the time of the recording for this one is at the, uh, the beginning of the month. So I just wrote my update. What happened last month? We I gave a lot of metrics in our channel and I did not dig deeper than just listing the metrics and then putting my assumptions why they're higher or lower. But I, I think also because it's just, it takes a lot of time if you want to dig behind the numbers and you might yes. not always have the qualitative data as well. Yeah. And I think too, if you're a technical founder or if you're a technical growth leader, the thing about the unique challenge I think that technical founders have when it comes to growing their SaaS companies is like you are literally trained to when you come across a bug, your code doesn't work. You are literally trained to come up with 20 reasons why and then troubleshoot down the list those 20 things. And the really cool thing about coding is you obviously have a really fast feedback cycle. But when it comes to growth, it's holistic. It's connected to a million other things. And usually when it comes to, oh, why is this not working the way I thought? Here's like a few reasons why. But there's no process that happens to validate which one it actually is. But it's just because I think the nature of the type of work that we're used to and growth work being wildly different, in my opinion, it's just not it's not the same feedback loop at all. <laughs> but yes. Thank you for listening to the Grow Your B2B SaaS podcast. This podcast episode is sponsored by Redditus. Redditus helps B2B SaaS companies to set up, manage, and grow an affiliate program. In short, an affiliate program means that you're going to ask other people to promote your SaaS and you would only pay them if they deliver you a paid client, making it a very cost-effective and scalable way to grow your monthly recurring revenue. See more at getredditus.com. We talked about mistakes. Let's turn it around. Are there any best practices regarding like finding growth opportunities or doing a growth audit? So the things that I typically recommend to teams and also help them with myself, but what I find is when you have the team aligned and on board with what the goal is, and also you've set the expectation that this is not a space for judgment. No one's going to get fired because of this growth audit, as I hope not. And there, this is not a space for judging. This is a space for uncovering, exploring, and finding. We're seeking. We are seeking opportunities. Even if there is a KPI that is not working the way, like you already know revenue churn is bad, or you already know your 
net new user retention isn't great. Even if you already know like what the problems are, creating a safe space to just say, the goal here is not to judge. The goal here is to troubleshoot, to fix, and to find. And getting the entire team aligned around that Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to position the growth audit as something that is like a scary thing and someone's going to get in trouble. This will cause people to hide and it will cause them to want to like maybe not give you all the information. (laughs) And that's not what we want. We want transparency. We want the truth. And but also we want to create a space that is safe ultimately. And it's not a space for judgment. All that to say, though. When I find teams that do a really good job of either conducting their own growth audit or they do a really good job of collecting the information, collecting the insights, it's because they're coming from a space of trust and transparency and very low ego. No one is showing up to the table wanting to be right and also wanting to hide like maybe the, the shitty KPIs that aren't doing as good as they would like. They're coming to the table with, here it is, here's the truth, here's what I found, here's what I've learned, here's what I've taken away from this, here's what I think, but we should prove these, or we should validate these things. That's definitely one of the most healthy responses to a growth audit. The secondary thing I would say is getting really honest in that process around what, what you don't know and what you don't know. It never fails. Every time I've ever run a growth audit with a team, you always hear from like the founder and like from the product manager and then from the head of marketing, you, you hear, okay, I know that the customers are doing this, or I know that this is our customer. I know like these things, but here's what I don't know. I don't know if they've compared us to something else. They're very transparent about what is unknown. I think where the growth audit falls apart is when you are neither aware nor are honest with what you know that you don't know. I think sometimes too, there's this tendency to want to like, no, I know the customer, or I know this, or I know that. But in actuality, it's like, well, there are some things I don't know. And I think if you're really clear and transparent about that, it makes the growth audit even more powerful because it makes it clear what your next projects are. So all that to say, I think creating that safe space, definitely one of the best practices, especially if you have a team doing this. And then secondly, getting really clear about what you don't know, because that usually creates a project or a task for someone else to go know. Well, let's go figure it out. Let's go find out so we can improve our decision making. And so we can reduce the risk of making a decision based off of bad data or old data or missing data, which of course we can fix the missing part at least. That almost sounds like this is going to work really well within a company organization where they're really transparent versus I guess if you work in silos, you have a lot of egos and indeed like there's a lot of judgment or people hiding information. They want to get their promotion so they don't want to reveal information which could hurt them in the long term even though it's not the case probably (laughs) yeah totally a good i think a good growth audit probably doesn't survive a not so great culture but if even if you are a leader though of a team so maybe you're a product leader or maybe you're a growth leader maybe you're a marketing leader you can still use the audit as a way to audit the marketing department or audit the product department so even if you can't do a cross-functional growth audit That's totally fine. It's ideal if you can, of course. But if you're feeling like, "Mm, I don't know if our culture would survive a cross-functional growth audit, then you can still use the audit as a way to see how your own function could uh, improve on various aspects of SaaS growth. Let's assume we can do it across departments and everybody is transparent. Like there's still probably going to be challenges and obstacles uh, people are going to face while doing the audit growth. Like any other challenges they will face and maybe some ideas on how to overcome those? The first one is easily the collecting the data. So if the data doesn't exist, then it's either a project to collect it. 
in some cases, that project might not be a short project. So for example, you might conduct a growth audit and then realize that in order for you to actually make a really good sound strategic decision, maybe you need to conduct customer research or audience research or user research or all of the above. And that can take weeks. Like that, That's an easily several weeks process or project. Even if you were to run a survey, it would still take a few weeks to design it, send it out, get responses, analyze it, et cetera. There's collecting information to make a good decision. I think one of the other big challenges is not knowing if you've gone deep enough. But this ultimately comes down to experience level expertise and just general knowledge of how SaaS businesses grow, how they work, how they function, and at various stages. This can be remedied with really good advisors, consultants, coaches, people that you trust, other founders who've made it there in terms of knowing, have I gone deep enough? Have I looked at the right things? And is there anything else that I'm missing? It's one of those unknown unknowns. And usually the best way that we fix unknown unknowns is by leveraging people who know that it's a known and can help enlighten maybe gaps that you might have. But apart from gathering the data itself and also knowing if you've gone deep enough, the last thing truly is committing to the process of auditing growth in and of itself. It's really easy to get extremely distracted in the process. You're collecting a data point for something. You're analyzing or tearing down marketing, for example, or maybe you're tearing down something in awareness or acquisition or something. It could be whatever you might find that you've actually uncovered another problem. And sometimes that problem is worth putting all of your energy and focus into, and then you abandon the growth audit altogether. But I find it's rare. It's usually very rare. Like it would have to be like a bug so bad or like a thing so like wildly monstrous that it's now the new focus. <laughs> but otherwise, it's getting distracted in the process. I, I recommend that teams don't spend more than two to three weeks on this if they can help it. And if they find that there's data that they need, then they need that it's going to take them very like a long time to collect to even arrive and close out like the original growth audit process. So it doesn't take six months for you to do it. That's what I typically recommend. So letting this thing string out, that's another big challenge, keeping it tight and focused. And even if you know that you need data to, to make better decisions in that process, making the trade off saying, OK, we're going to wrap this up. This is where we're leaving off. We know that we need this. Here's what we have learned and here's what we can execute on pretty confidently because you don't want the growth audit to end up with you not executing anything or end up with you not making a decision about something. You want to ultimately conclude. There are scenarios where you won't be able to, but it's rare. It's very rare. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned it already. This is maybe even a promotional question from my side. This is why they should be working with a company like Demand Maven, right? Where you can actually help them to stay on track, stay on time and make sure that they know the unknown or at least know uh, that something is unknown and help them get unstuck, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I guess if there was one last thing I'll mention about this is sometimes the growth audit goes great, but then it doesn't actually turn into action at the end. And so sometimes it's okay, like we Asia told us to do a growth audit, we did it, yay. But then it doesn't actually turn into projects and experiments after. And that's also a very big potential gap. The growth audit is done for several reasons. Usually it's to help you make a decision. But first and foremost, it's absolutely to help you make movement, action on something and do something like it is to help whether it's strategically planning, like maybe you're annually planning right now for 2024. And you're like, I don't know what my top growth priorities are. I think I do, but I haven't validated them or whatever it is. Just make sure that whatever it is at the end of it, that you actually do have an action plan for what to go and do next. 
And if you don't know how to translate what you've audited into action execution, my door is always open. I'm an open book. Any question you all have, I will be happy to answer. But that's another potential gap. But anyway, yes. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we're definitely going to link your profile, LinkedIn profile and email in the show notes. You already mentioned it, 2024. I guess you already also mentioned it a little bit at the beginning. SaaS companies focusing more on profitability, sustainability. How do you overall see the, the growth of SaaS companies changing and maybe going forward in, in 2024? Absolutely. Already, the fundraising environment is completely different. I think what investors are hoping to see and wanting to see more than anything now is they want to see sustainability and profitability. And of course, growth is always going to be a part of the story. And But to me, like I said, growth can really be truly like the we're just going to grow at all costs kind of mentality. But then there's also the, no, we're going to grow as sustainably and profitably as possible. And not only this, but marketing channels, it's getting more expensive. I think in the last, I don't know, what, six to eight years, it's doubled, if I'm not mistaken. Marketing channels are going to continue to get more and more expensive. It's also going to get noisier. It's getting harder to stand out from competition, from other producers, providers, creators. And then you've got AI into the mix. So AI is going to make things really interesting because on the one hand, it's going to make it really cheap for a lot of people to compete on the same thing and producing content about the same things, which means there's going to be even more noise. But on the other hand, I think teams that learn how to use AI will... Imp so one of the growth levers is operations and doing more with the resources that you have. So on the other hand, AI can actually scale a team in a very different way. That's going to be really interesting to see. All I have to say, I think the trend is going to be, how can you grow with what you already have? How can you grow without adding necessarily more and more headcount or spending more and more dollars on acquisition? There are going to be some markets and industries where doing that makes sense, where growing by headcount and growing by spending more acquisition dollars will make sense. But I think it's going to be ultimately the day. How can we improve this cost of revenue that we're seeing? Is it, if it's too expensive to generate the revenue that we're generating, is it worth it? And I think the landscape is going to shift. I don't know for how long. I feel like the last time we saw this was probably after the dot-com bu uh, bubble was I think the last time this trend was like, like happened. We're seeing it again due to COVID and other, I think also too, just like in the VC world and in the VC market, we're seeing WeWork and Theranos and FTX, like those have the hype bubble, I think, has burst on organizations like that in some ways. Even there's skepticism about Uber. And so I think there's a general fear but and also concern, but then also a new value on let's create sustainable growth. Let's create profitability. So yeah, that's where I think we're headed. I don't know for how long. I also don't know how it could be fickle. It, it's the story now, but maybe in another two years, it'll change again. <laughs> and it'll be more about like growth at all costs. But I don't think we're seeing that. I also, I just get the general sense too that people are wanting to be more thoughtful and they're wanting to be more strategic. And yes, like the hustle is great when you love the hustle, but if the hustle is not creating more of what you want to see in the bottom line, then maybe we need to pause for a minute and think and get critical about what's really happening. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think that's why we're like firstly in a minute good space because we're basically help SaaS companies to grow in a cost-effective way with using affiliates. So like even the things you mentioned, I feel like we're in a definitely in the right direction when I look at our own business. We are going to close off. I always have these four questions at the end. So 
when we start with advice about auditing growth or maybe growth in, in general, what kind of advice would you give somebody who's just starting out and grow to 10K monthly recurring revenue? This is actually true for really any company, but if you're just starting out and you're trying to get to 10K in MR, your ultimate mission is going to be, it's called revenue core retention. Your mission is to get to, let's say, 60% after 12 months. At six months, it should ideally be 60 plus percent. And that's on the way to 10K. And the reason why is because um, if you're not familiar with revenue core retention, basically what that means is the revenue that you've generated this month, how much of that revenue do you retain every month after that from that same bucket of revenue that you got this month? And if you use profit, there's a chart for you for free. It'll show you this. Bear Metrics has it too. And so does ChartMogul. I feel like there's a couple of others that have this chart. But if you're using any of those tools, they probably have a revenue cohort retention report for you for free right now. And your goal is to get to that metric. And the reason why is because if you don't, you're going to have to replace that 10K MRR every 6 to 12 months if you have less than 60% at 6 months. And the way that you get there is by focusing on the things that you already know about. So you already know about getting to product market fit. You already know about, okay, what are the channels for acquiring the best paying customer? Who is my best paying customer? Why do they buy it? You already know about that process, or I'm assuming you do at least. But when I audit growth, the first thing I'm looking at is revenue court retention. It doesn't matter what size of the business it is. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, the highest growth companies, the ones that are like, they're just like taking off. They have 120% typically, like it's 100 to 120% revenue retention at 12 months. And then the ones who are in between, at the 12-month mark, they're usually getting 80%. They should be getting 100, but even 80% still is technically pretty good. If it's 60% or less at 12 months, this business is going to have to replace its revenue every 12 months. And that's a grind. Basically means that marketing has to work extremely hard, so does sales, and you really only grow by focusing on acquisition. But we all know that acquisition is getting more expensive, which means that your cost of revenue might actually be really high. And also just a generally, it's not going to be as efficient as a funnel. But that's what we typically see. And it's a little bit different for B2C. So B2C SaaS, we can see the 60 to 80% at the 12-month mark revenue court retention, and it tends to be pretty healthy. But ideally, we're still in the 100% if we can get there. But if you're 10K MRR, yeah, I would say at the six-month mark, get more than 60%. That's a good sign if you're getting better and better cohort retention on the revenue side. So when you go indeed past that 10K MRR, what kind of advice would you give SaaS companies growing to 10 million ARR? And it's, I know it's a big step, but any advice here? Absolutely. Okay. So I'm actually going to break it out into, so let's go from 10K to 80K MRR, which would get you to the million-ish. I think it's 83 or whatever. But so from 10K to 83K MRR, it, getting to the million, the biggest differences here are doubling down on the channels that generate the best paying customer, getting like violently clear, violently, aggressively clear about who the best paying customer actually is and what the context is upon which they are buying the software. Too many teams get way too distracted on the way to a million. They get super distracted. They think they have to be everything to everyone. They think that they have to scale and grow many different parts of the product and they don't necessarily have to. They need they, they actually need to instead focus on best paying customer, creating value, delivering value. That's the trifecta. That's what gets you to a million. That plus channels. We need to have a way to generate the best paying customer. And ideally, it's with a channel that is cost effective. As we've discussed, it's getting more and more expensive. This all like your pricing and monetization is part of the story as well. 
But once we get to a million plus, so a million to five is very different in my opinion than five to 10. (laughs) One to five is usually, oh shit, we're figuring it out. And they're like, like teams are figuring out processes for the first time. Teams are also figuring out like, oh, how do we actually all work together to accomplish the mutual goal? Usually also this is when they discover that they're actually not as good at product management as they think that they are. And so they start hiring their very first head of product or they start hiring, if they already have a VP of product, maybe they're already investing in what is our methodology for how we define what customer value looks like and how we understand the problem space that we're in and how we build new features. How do we, what are the trade-offs that we're making? And this is also usually like one to 5 million ARR is usually also when teams discover what is their go-to market strategy now? Because it's probably different from when they were at 20K and MRR. And usually one to five, there's... It's fun and uncomfortable at the same time because it's you're making trade-offs go-to-market wise. What you build with the product makes trade-offs actively in the market. And I think a lot of teams, they might know that subconsciously, but when it plays out in real life, it's like a surprise. And then five to 10, usually, so from my experience, five to 10 is, I, f- I feel like once you get to five, getting to 10 is usually pretty clear you've because you've done all the struggling from one to five like you're probably pretty crystal clear on go-to market strategy to an extent like you're clear like here's how we're positioned here's what we're um, ultimately here's what we're providing to the market here are maybe not just one best paying customer but here's our top two to three segments here's how we go to market to each of those segments and really five to ten ends up being more about team and people and culture i find and making sure you've got the right people in the right seats to do the good work. And then 10 beyond. So I'll, I, I can give the picture of 10, 10 to 50, for example, because I've seen this too. It's This is where go-to-market strategy now changes. And now we're making decisions and trade-offs about our position in the market. And this is where product development, product management, this actually becomes crucial. And also too, we start to see companies make acquisitions. We start to see companies really building their brand. I think about HubSpot, actually, mm-hmm. thinking about like how does HubSpot do what HubSpot does? When they were in that 10 to 50 space, they were making very specific investments in certain parts of the market to acquire like their market share. And then, of course, they're huge now. But yeah, it's a different race. But that's what that's the advice I would give. Nice. Nice. Thank you. And maybe one more general piece of advice, I guess, for SaaS founders, because that's our audience, right? Any general advice you want to give towards SaaS founders who are currently on their journey growing their SaaS? I would say hang in there. Where you're at who you are, what you're doing, what you're learning. There's light at the end of whatever tunnel you're in. And it's impossible for you to know everything. So the best that you can do is with what you know today. There's this common phrase that's like hindsight's always 2020 and that is actually not true at all. Hindsight's not 2020. You can actually only make decisions with the information and the knowledge that you have today and unless you dedicate your whole life to learning everything, it's, it's going to be impossible for you to actually make decisions with 180 degree view. That's actually not realistic or possible. So I think hanging in there and doing the best with what you have, that is, I think, what like we all have to hold on to. Of course, we all have goals. We have ambitions, especially if you're an achiever. But I think if you're out there listening and you're beating yourself up for not being where you want to be, it's just not... I want to relieve everyone of that angst because where you are now is where you are meant to be and where you're going to be next is also where you're meant to be. You're probably doing the right thing. You're probably on the right path. Could it be better? Of course. But just hang in there. It gets better. Nice. I think it's a great piece of advice because no matter in which stage you're in, you're always going to have problems. They never stop coming. So 
never. I'm working with a company that's 500 million. They're, yeah, 500 million in ARR. They've got like 70,000 customers, got five products, huge company. And they have, of course, they have challenges. They have tons of challenges. And they're not wildly different from what we're experiencing, like from what like the average person is experiencing running their SaaS company. It happens at every stage, every size. No one has it perfectly figured out. It just, the scale of the problems gets bigger. And if that's exciting, then great. And if it's not exciting, then what can we do so that you're focused on the problems that you really want to solve? Nice. I like it. Maybe one final personal question. What is one thing you wish you knew 10 years ago? The phrase that just came to my mind was that it, it's actually not about me. So when I was earlier in my career, so I started out in marketing and I've been in tech for the last, I don't know, 11, 12 years, whatever. But I think like in my earlier marketing roles, I used to think that just because my goal wasn't met, that the whole company would fall apart. Or, And I'm not saying this to say that anyone who's listening out there should relax on their goals. It's less that as much as I guess I used to think that I was this like magical linchpin. And if I wasn't doing it right or well, then the whole thing would fall apart. And it took me years to realize, oh, it's actually not about me. <laughs> it's actually about something much bigger than me. And it's actually about the collective. And it's about all of us together. And there's value in being able to see yourself as the individual. Of course there is. Of course there's value in being able to take responsibility for yourself. But what took me several years to realize was like, oh, it's actually about all of us. It's about the whole picture. And I think if I if that was something that I had internalized earlier, I think I wouldn't have maybe been so scared to make certain decisions. And at the same exact time, I would have taken more risks because I think that there's there's a fear that gets associated with thinking that you're the linchpin for things of, oh, if I mess up, then the whole thing falls apart. But actually, that's not necessarily always true. We can take risks because it's about the collective. It's not about the individual in the same way. But anyway, I hope it, I really hope that doesn't get totally construed. I hope that makes sense. But that's what I wish I had known 10 years ago, I, like that it's actually like the world did not evolve around me. And once I learned that, I was like, oh, <laughs> the world actually just revolves. And that's it. <laughs> Final question. If people want to get in contact with you, we're going to link your LinkedIn profile. Is that the best way or should they contact you in, in any different way? Yeah. Okay. So LinkedIn is great. I would say if you send a connection request, just say that you listen to this podcast. And so I, I know that it was you. Otherwise, I'm active there, of course. There's also, I publish weekly on my newsletter called The Work. So if you like the way I think, if you want to learn more about not only how to audit growth, but also other growth-related concepts, whether it's in marketing, product, whatever it is. There is uh, my newsletter on Substack. It is called The Work by Demand Maven. And then I'm occasionally on Twitter here and there, X, whatever we're calling it now. I think it's X technically. And then, yeah, demandmaven.io is also where I reside. So if you ever want to chat, hit me up. I have an open book. I'm happy to answer any question you guys have. So yeah, just happy to provide value where I can. Nice. We're definitely going to make sure that we link to all the social profiles. But I guess the conclusion here is get in contact via the, the website or get in contact via LinkedIn because X or Twitter might not be the, the best way. <laughs> Thanks for, for coming on to the show again. Thank you, Asia. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to the Grow Your B2B SaaS podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please leave us a review, follow us, thumbs up. Uh, you know what to do. If you want to sponsor the show to reach SaaS founders, just ping us on LinkedIn. And if you're experiencing any kind of specific challenges right now, let us know as well. We're always looking for topics to cover in our show. 
for now have a great day and keep growing your b2b SaaS.